Hello and welcome to this combined New Zealand Initiative and Free Kiwis podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and we are joined today on the interviewing side of the panel by my colleagues Michael Johnston and James Kirstedt and we have a very special guest in our podcast studio and that's Lord Jonathan Sumption. Welcome to you. I'm glad to be here. It's a privilege to have you on our podcast and we want to talk about your advocacy for free speech. That's why you're here. You're a guest of the Free Speech Union. But we want to also draw lessons that go beyond free speech, talk about the state of the world, the state of Western democracy, of liberal democracy. But if I may, I would like to start with a reference back to your early career, because once upon a time you were involved in think tank land. Mm -hmm. I read in your Wikipedia entry, actually, that you were one of the first employees of the Center for Policy Studies. That was um, a think tank in London in the 1970s. Can you tell us about that? Well, I at the time was a an academic historian at Oxford and I had a part-time arrangement with Keith Joseph, who was one of the trustees of the Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, I did research for him on educational policy mainly. At the time, Keith Joseph was leading the movement away from managed economies of the kind practiced by the 1964-1970 Labour government and to a significant extent also by the Conservative government of Edward Heath. I was at the time a supporter of the Labour Party, as I have been periodically, but not always since then. And Keith Joseph obviously was a prominent figure in the Conservative Party, particularly prominent after their electoral defeats in 1974. It was an interesting moment, but my involvement in the Centre for Policy Studies was pretty marginal. Still, it was a time when people like Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher were leading the battle of ideas yes. and the counter-revolution in British politics, which really went against decades of economic policy. That is true. And in a way, aren't we fighting a similar kind of battle of ideas these days, 50 years on? Well, there's a battle of ideas, but I wouldn't say it was similar. What makes it different? Well, we're not so much talking about the economy now. Uh, the debate in the 70s was about the role of government in economic management and planning. There was a, a movement both in Britain and the United States to reduce the role of government in economic life. Part of its inspiration came from Milton Friedman in Chicago, whose views were very much more absolute and I was going to use the word extreme, but They were certainly more enthusiastic, let us say, than those of either Keith Joseph or Margaret Thatcher, Margaret who Thatcher were basically pragmatists. Was, and Margaret Thatcher was also very heavily influenced by Friedrich Hayek. Yes, she was. I mean, Friedrich Hayek, of course, was a, he was an idealist. He had prescriptions for reordering democracy, which were totally unrealistic in themselves, but they did respond to real issues and real problems, which Hayek was very eloquent in identifying. Hayek, of course, was not just an economist. He had his first degree in law. That is true. Though I would say that he was really a constitutional theorist rather than a lawyer. No doubt the background in law explains much about him. And then later, I think he also had a degree in psychology. I didn't know that. So the debates in the 70s obviously were heavily focused on the economy. Um, yes. With occasional discussions on individual liberty as well, especially from people like Hayek, because he took a more a yes. broader view of society. Yes. Whereas today's debates have morphed into debates on culture. Yes. I mean, I think that Hayek is just as relevant to today's issues as he was to the issues 
that uh, that dominated the 1970s. But that tells you more about Hayek himself than it does about the 1970s or indeed today. Perhaps we might actually see the debates today as being more fundamental. Would you, would you agree with that? I mean, it seems to me, I mean, economics are very important. But now we're talking about things like free speech, which personally I would see as a, a foundational value of liberal democracy. Yes. We can have more superficial, I would say, debates about how the economic order is arranged, the extent to which taxation is desirable and redistribution of wealth and, and those kinds of things. And th- those debates can happen very happily within a broad framework of liberal democracy. But now it seems to me that we're talking about things that are much more fundamental. I agree with that. And much more fundamental, it's fair to say, than, than anything that in practical terms the Centre for Policy Studies was concerned with in the 1970s. But we're really going back well beyond Hayek. What we are actually debating nowadays are the issues which were first very clearly raised by John Stuart Mill Mm. in the 1850s and 60s because he recognised that the great enemy of liberal democracy and of free speech was not governments but movements within the population, the conflict of different groups of citizens. Mill believed that the conventions uh, of the majority had a propensity to oppress minorities who might be the source of the most original thinking in any society. And that certainly was a perception that I think was important and right. But we have managed today to take this further. We have created a situation in which the means of communication, primarily the internet, enable really quite small minorities to oppress majorities, or at least those members of majorities who choose to express themselves freely and and step out of line. That's a new and potentially quite sinister development. But what we are really concerned with is how we deal with disputes between different groups of citizens, never mind how big or small they might be. Uh, The basic function of democracy is not, in my view, the pursuit of some moral ideal. It is essentially to reconcile people with opposing interests and opinions. The opposing interests may have a large moral element, but the essence of democracy is participation and not moral purity. We need, in order to be able to participate, to be able to have a free discourse about major issues. And the threat that the opposition to free speech poses is that it may suppress the one function that democracy has traditionally been good at achieving. How did we get to that point? You mentioned technology as one of the factors in this development. Well, I think there have been two main factors. One is the decline of individualism as part of our library of political knowledge. I think that Mill was nothing if not an individualist. There is a much stronger tendency nowadays to feel that what we need is a collective view, that individualism is selfish, uh, destructive, and that that a society should have a common view. This is a, a wonderfully romantic idea, which I suppose owes its intellectual origins probably to Rousseau. Mm-hmm. But it is it what it discounts is the individuality and curiosity of human beings. We cannot achieve a common approach to major moral or ethical dilemmas because people will dissent. The only way you can achieve commonality in that situation is by coercion. And what we are now seeing is an attempt essentially to coerce 
people intellectually into a particular series of, of pigeonholes. That's one development. But the other one, I think you need to look back over a longer historical period. Tolerance is not natural to human beings. The natural and default position of human beings is the kind of situation that you had for most of human history before the 17th century, in which beliefs about primarily religion, but also about the natural world, were determined by authority. We created, in the course of the next four centuries, starting perhaps around the middle of the second half of the 17th century, a world in which there was no such thing as heresy. There were views that were unconventional, like, for example, the view that the earth moved round the sun and not the other way around, which people regarded as absurd and heretical at one stage. But we adopted, we moved into a political culture in which you put up with error or the possibility of error because the process of challenging it was more likely to produce truth. And essentially, civilization's astonishing advance, both materially and intellectually, since the end of the 17th century, has been the result of a world in which anybody is free to produce a hypothesis, however shocking, which others are free to knock down. And the process of subjecting ideas to criticism has brought us closer to the truth. There is no absolute truth in the sense that all propositions of fact or opinion are provisional until something better comes along. But we've exhausted quite a number of topics, and it seems unlikely that something better is going to come along about, for instance, the movements of the earth. I would like to ask a follow-up question, mm -hmm. because your first point surprised me. You said that individualism was on the decline. Mm -hmm. At the same time, of course, we have an, a society that's probably more atomized than ever because of the technological possibilities where No one has to watch uh, one of three TV channels anymore because there are millions out there that you can watch. People are actually finding their own little niches and bubbles in, yes. into which they withdraw. So actually the, the That's possibilities... That's not the same as individualism. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right that society is atomized intellectually and in other ways. But that is perfectly consistent with a situation in which there is a collective disapproval of challenging of challenge to basic social assumptions and some social assumptions that are not particularly basic and are not that widely shared but which are conventionally not publicly denounced you're i think drawing a, a confluence between the development of science and the development of liberal democracy mentioning the the work of Copernicus and Galileo and mm -hmm. noting that the... That's, that's a, an example which I choose simply because it it's a dispute about fact right. rather than theory. Fact ought in principle to be less disputable because there is a truth out there, however hard it is to, to identify it. So we, we do see that confluence, I think, though, and perhaps we could refer to the work of Karl Popper, who, of course... Yes. He's both a political philosopher and a scientific philosopher. He was the, the most significant Indeed. advocate of the yeah. process of action and counteraction intellectually, which as a mechanism for arriving at the truth. I mean, it's an idea that goes back to Newton, but it's a, an idea that was articulated much more fully yes. in modern times by Karl Popper than anyone else. Indeed. So there's a puzzle here for me that I'd be interested in your reflections on. I've just been listening to Constantine Kisson speaking to the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, mm -hmm. and he opened with the observation that the underpinnings of free speech and indeed open society are spiritual in nature. I don't know if you agree with that, 
But if you do, how, how do we reconcile that with the secularization of society at the same time that open society is starting to be a, a real phenomenon? I'm not sure I know what it means to say that the origins of free speech are spiritual. I wouldn't have put it that way. It seems to me the origins of free speech lie in a pragmatic recognition that hypothesis, observation, and rational argument are useful ways of arriving at both an answer that we can all, most of us, accept and that's something that seems likely to be closer to the truth than anything else. Yes, I, I agree with that. But I'm wondering if the origins of that notion itself may, may have been in a Christian worldview. And the way I've heard that articulated is that the idea that souls are equal before God was a very important idea in the development of that of that notion, that, that human beings have some fundamental equality and that without that, we're stuck with a less egalitarian perspective? Well, uh, we are, democracy is built upon the proposition that although none of us has a significant influence on political outcomes individually, we all have an equal right to have our views, however prejudiced or, or ignorant, taken into account. So we have one vote each. Uh, it's absolutely right that one person, one vote is grounded in uh, notions of equal participation. I wouldn't say that that had anything to do with the Christian notion that uh, all souls are equal. Moreover, Christian institutions have, on the whole, given the lie to that institution Indeed. for most of their history. Yes. Maybe this is a good time to come on to universities, actually, because it does strike me that, so Oxford, where you taught, for example, if we go back far enough to the 19th century, say, Oxford itself had a particular moral view that it pushed, right? You had to be Anglican, you had to agree to a certain number of articles of Anglican faith. And from, for much of their history, Western universities were you had basically... had to pretend to. You had to pretend, by, by the late 19th century, you had to just pretend to. But, you know, at least on paper, for most of their history, the oldest European universities were Christian institutions. Now, yes, but that ceased to matter quite a long time before. I think it probably ceased to matter in the 17th century. So there was a long process whereby, you know, what they were sort of officially standing for stopped being so important, and really they became engines of enlightenment and debate and discovery. Yes. And I think that that process seems to have been, or you know, seemed to have been completed in the 20th century, where these ideals were sort of openly espoused by most academics. You know, that open debate should be a thing. There should be no ideas that, were, that are sacred and so on and so forth. And now uh, it's kind of terrifying because it's start, starting to look like universities are taking on a substantive moral view again. This time it's not Christianity, it's whatever you want to call this current ideology of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So is it possible that what we experienced in the 20th century or maybe 20th and 19th century was just a kind of blip and that these institutions are actually kind of returning to type, which is their nature as moral institutions? Well, one never knows whether something's a blip until it's finished. I suspect that the traditional view about the advantages in academic, the academic world of debate will survive and ultimately prevail. Uh, what is much more difficult to say is how long this will take. I think that there is a lot of irrational nonsense being spoken, particularly at Oxford, in relation to the so-called decolonization of the syllabus, a notion which is being applied not just uh, to things like history, where one can see the argument whether one agrees with it or not, to areas like mathematics,
science and uh, information technology, the scientific aspect of it, uh, where one can't even see the argument. One can read the words. But, I mean, there is, in the websites of some of the Oxford faculties, there are extraordinary statements to the effect that objectivity and merit, for example, are purely Western constructs. Yes. I mean, this is... So far as it has an intellectual ancestor, it's a really relatively recent one. It's the views of Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida uh, and those who believed that there was no such thing as objective truth. There were simply views that emerged from different power structures. And that is absolutely critical to the modern persecution mentality. Because if you believe that there is no objective truth. I mean, you can accept that it might be hard to identify objective truth, but we all, I think, have to accept that it exists somewhere out there. But if you believe that it doesn't exist out there at all, and that it's simply the product of existing power structures, then it is logical for you to say, there is no point in engaging in debate. We have to break the power structures. And hence, what you do is you endeavor to suppress uh, alternative views. But the problem about all of these absolutist notions is that they do not actually cater for the problem of dissent. Squashing dissent doesn't mean to say that there is none. It simply means to say that it's not, it simply means that it's not being heard. You therefore need some process by which you can determine which of inconsist two inconsistent views or maybe three inconsistent views is most likely to be true. Free speech coupled with informed debate and rational argument under ground rules which prevent uh, uh, cheating or evasion uh, is, as a matter of pragmatic experience, has been found to be the best way of doing that. But of course, if you're not looking for truth, uh, but you're simply looking to control the power structures that determine what people believe to be true, then you dispense with all that. I, I would contend that actually nobody believes that there's no such thing as, as truth. And they, people say so. I, I think they demonstrate it in the way that they live when they trust technology, which is constructed from the findings of science, and they have a great deal of faith in the idea that there's an absolute truth when they when they do so. Mm. So I, I'm... But this I, is a reason for rejecting their view. I, Unfortunately, I agree, it's not a reason for which has led them to depart from it. No, but I, I think that it seems to me anyway that it is actually a quest for power behind that rather than an actual rejection of the the idea of truth. And I think it's an, it is a, I mean, I think you've got to distinguish between arguments against their proposition and analysis of what the proposition is. I think that they do reject truth. I would agree with you that they reject truth for reasons which are inconsistent with their own behaviour in mm. some respects. And that may be an argument why, one of many arguments for saying that you should not reject truth. Uh, but I think that's undoubtedly what they are doing. And it is in order that they can say that uh, ways of thinking which are not associated with the European intellectual world and with the world of states that were once colonial states are just as valid. I mean, in Oxford, the former director of the Pitt Rivers Museum called in uh, an African shaman in order to divine uh, which items in the collection of the Pitt Rivers might have been removed without the consent of the tribes. The idea that a better way of doing this might possibly be to research the provenance of these mm. objects seems to have been implicitly rejected. Well, you know, there's an example, a particularly ridiculous example, as it happens, 
of the extremes to which you can go if you believe that truth is basically subjective. Or if you use the idea that truth is subjective in order to ad- advance a, a different agenda. And perhaps that's overly but cynical of me. But it, you, may be say, you may be right in saying that these people are actually hypocrites. They don't believe their own view. And I suspect that may well be true of some of them, but not all. It is... I mean, after all, these, the decolonization movement has been effectively forced by the university on individual faculties. It's, I think it's mystifying, but I mean, the, mm. what they are after, I think, is power, but of a fairly localized sort. I mean, they are interested in intellectual power. They're interested in the power of, and prestige of their own positions within one of the more famous of the world's universities. I mean, I, we've been talking about Oxford because I, I happen to know more about Oxford than any other university. I, I was there both as an undergraduate and as an academic. Uh, but Oxford is by no means the worst case in the UK. I would say that Cambridge has gone further down this route than Oxford and lesser universities have gone further still. I would also say that the UK generally has gone further, less far down this route than, for example, the United States where the culture of dismissal and disciplinary action against people who have unfashionable views has reached really quite alarming proportions. Well, what do you think? I mean, you've only been here a brief time, but what's your impression vis-a-vis New Zealand? How far along this path have we gone? I don't know. I don't know enough about New Zealand universities. I am told, but I haven't looked into it myself, that, that the principal New Zealand universities are taking steps to try and correct the position but I do not know whether that is true or how far they've got. Well, there is a, a move here to decolonize as well. And of course, in New Zealand, because it's, it, it was a, a British colony and there was a pre-existing people here, the Māori, there is a move to infuse the science curriculum in schools and at universities with Māori traditional knowledge. Uh, yes, well, I'm aware of the debate surrounding the letter to the listener right. uh, by the seven scientists, including three members of the New Zealand Royal Society, who had to face the prospect of disciplinary proceedings. Uh, to my mind, this was a particularly extraordinary thing. I haven't read the charter of the New Zealand Royal Society. I'm aware that they say that they are bound to investigate any complaint Uh, and by implication any complaint, however absurd. But I did think that it was extremely odd to alter the syllabus in a way that sought to produce equivalence between Maori ways of knowing and empirical science. I think um, Richard Dawkins, who who came to New Zealand and delivered a number of lectures and has also lectured on this general subject in England, has made an an unanswerable case. It's not a difficult case to make, but he has made it particularly eloquently. It is absolutely true that observation coupled with empirical testing is the only way of producing a, a body of knowledge which is verifiable. A body of knowledge which is not verifiable is not useful. Uh, it is also right to point out that knowledge is universal. Certainly knowledge of the natural world is universal. If uh, the world goes round the sun in England, then it does the same thing in New Zealand. The, the idea, therefore, that the historical origins of particular discoveries in some way brand items of knowledge as being of diminished value to the rest of the world is a very strange one. The problem about Maori ways of knowledge is that some of them 
are not capable of empirical verification. And in any event, they, something cannot be true for Maoris in New Zealand and yet untrue uh, for Frenchmen in France. Mm. You know, th- this, is, this is all pretty obvious. The way that event played out actually in some ways gave me some hope because, it, yeah. I mean, it was terribly unpleasant for the people involved, of course, and, and terribly unfair to them. But there was a self-correction. Yes. Within the Royal Society, there was a rebellion led by Professor Gavin Martin, who's a mathematician, and he circulated a petition that was signed by a great many of the fellows, and he reported that many of those who didn't sign didn't do so because they were scared rather than because they disagreed. However, with the intervention of people like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne, the, the international scientists, the investigation was called off, yes. and, and I think over time the, the issue has become easier to talk about. It's still contentious for sure, as things perhaps should be in a democracy, but I think there is... A, but it's contentious for sociological rather than I agree. scientific I, I, reasons. I mean, I think I, I, I'm completely with you on that, and, and I think that, that it's a, in many it's ways a It's a classic illustration debate. of the value of free speech. Yeah. What you've got here is a an implicit statement in the project for revising the syllabus, which is challenged, and there is the usual shock and horror and more or less artificial dismay expressed, followed by a debate from which something approaching a consensus emerges. I mean, that that is the way that civilized societies ought to resolve their differences. Now, it may still be true that we should uh, treat ethnic minorities such as the Maoris in ways that respect their, their own traditions. Mm. But we do that for social, political reasons for we do that as a matter of ethnography we do we do not do it as a contribution to universal science i would like to return to the earlier question how did we get there you gave us a few answers already mm-hmm. you mentioned foucault you mentioned derrida we could probably include the frankfurt school the march through the institutions which is probably now being completed but there's another factor in all of this and that is actually the end of the cold war the uh, Francis Fukuyama moment of the end of history where we thought liberal democracy had won Mm -hmm. and where suddenly the competition of the systems, at least for a brief moment, appeared to disappear. Is that one of the factors that has led us to a state of being unaware of the challenges to free speech because we now took them for granted because we had obviously won. I just want to I think it may explain the complacency, but not not the facts about which we're complacent. Sure, just... I want to mention I hide it very well with my accent, but I'm originally from Germany, yes. West Germany. And uh, we had a saying at the time of the Cold War, when someone came up with really crazy leftist ideas, socialist ideas in West Germany, the saying was, well, dann geh doch nach drüben, then just go over there if you really prefer that. And of course, nobody wanted to cross that border to the east. But there is no over there anymore, or at least there was no over there anymore for a while. And therefore, you couldn't actually discipline your own thinking by saying, actually, is that the alternative you really want? Well, there is a, a, an over, where, over there if you look at it in a longer time perspective, because the, these things are cyclical. Uh, I think that there is a, a tendency at the moment to retreat into a form of intellectual and in some cases political authoritarianism. This will naturally be corrected when we get there and find that we've arrived in a place that we find is rather disagreeable. Now, of course, some autocratic regimes have the means of holding on to power by 
coercion, even after they've been found out. And that's a very dangerous state of affairs. It is quite obviously uh, what happened in Soviet Russia and over a shorter time period in Nazi Germany. But provided that we retain the uh, institutional possibilities of uh, having a different view tomorrow to the one that we had today, this should correct itself. What we can't say, at least what I can't say, is how long that this will take. Although earlier James alluded to the possibility that open society, liberal democracy is a blip, uh, and and your comment was it's too early to say you can't you can't tell until things play out and I, I very much hope you're right that these things are cyclical but I, I would say that the the enlightenment of the of the 18th century is pretty much unprecedented in in human history I I know that we could look to some of the ancient world and James is a scholar of of ancient Athens and. They experimented with a, a sort ancient of Athens wasn't that, that tolerant. Well, quiet. Well, of and, course, and they, they, they killed Socrates. There's actually a big scholarly debate on this, which I won't go into. But <laughs> well, there are scholars who think uh, the execution of Socrates was actually an extreme outlier, and in general, they didn't persecute him. However, that may be. I, I guess what I'm asking is, what what is the evidence that it's cyclical? There's no evidence that it's cyclical because what I'm suggesting is that this is likely to happen in future and by definition we have no evidence about the future. Right. We can only speculate. But I mean, the, I think that the point that you're making is that, that democracy uh, and free speech are not natural default Ab- positions of humanity. I, I'm a psychologist yeah. and, and I, I completely I agree with you. They are about free speech. Yeah. Uh, and that's absolutely true. Uh, they are artificial constructs. They are the product of a particular culture. Mm-hmm. And all cultures are inherently fragile. Sufficient dissent from them, even if it's wholly irrational, may be enough to destroy them. I think that what has happened historically is, I mean, you're absolutely right to point to the Enlightenment as a critical moment. I mean, I would start the clock possibly in the middle of the 17th century, because I think that the origins of the scientific method uh, and which is not confined to science, obviously, no. uh, lie a little earlier than what yes, we classically think of as the Enlightenment. But the interesting thing is when, I mean, this was essentially an intellectual and political elite who were behind these changes in human culture, at least in Europe. And the interesting thing is how did it come about that for a time the assumptions and outlook of an intellectual elite were communicated to and by and large accepted by a much larger political class and a much larger academic class with the democratization of most Western societies in the course of the 19th century. And I think that the answer to that, or at least part of the answer, uh, is that the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries were essentially hierarchical societies which were based on a very large measure of deference, not just to expertise, but to the conventions of a a class that had previously had more or less a monopoly of political control and intellectual influence. A large part of the explanation for why we have lost some of that culture is that we have lost respect for hierarchies. Now, I don't think it's realistic or sensible to suggest that we must go back uh, to an age of intellectual or political deference. Mm. But what I do think we need to do is to find some substitute for it, which will enable us to have the advantages of insights which were born in a very elitist society and apply it to a society that rejects elites, or at least sometimes does. 
A partial substitute for that would be respect for the truth. Indeed. Hence, free speech. Well, yeah. I, can yeah. I put a counterpoint to that? Because you said before that what's happening now is actually the domination of the majority by a minority. Well, in, not in all areas, but I think it's right. that, that is a possibility that the internet has opened up, which in some areas, for example, transgender, has enabled minorities to control the intellectual temperature. Right, and sometimes they're actually experts or they are people posing as experts, right? So part of the, what's happening now is that people are giving too much deference to supposed authority, right? Because the universities are saying, this is how gender works, there's an infinite variety of genders, there aren't two sexes, and people just seem to go along with this without testing it in many cases. I don't think that's because of deference, intellectual or otherwise. I think that it is because, in many cases, they don't accept it, but they do accept that they've got to pretend to accept right. it. I mean, there's a rather startling uh, statistic, series of statistics in um, Kevorkian's latest book on the uh, cancelling of the American mind, in which quite extensive polling evidence suggests that more than 80% of students in American universities feel that they are required to pay obeisance to views that they don't actually accept, uh, because the alternative is a degree of ostracism which would do their careers no good. So there's a what we're looking at is something that's coercive rather than intellectual. It is happening in wider society too. So oh, yes. just a couple of days ago in your seat, I had uh, Bill English, our former prime minister, for mm -hmm. another conversation. And Bill is uh, currently very much engaged in Australia, sits on a number of Australian boards. We talked about the Australian voice referendum. Mm -hmm. You may have heard about I do know about that. Yes. And uh, Bill said he just had conversations with his Australian peers and said it was remarkable. One of them said in all the conversations on The Voice with fellow Australians, he'd never come across anyone voting against it. And yet 61% did. In That's the because we choose our friends among those who agree with us. I think that I noticed exactly the same, but without the moderation in relation to the debate about Brexit in the United Kingdom. My daughter uh, worked in Washington for eight years, uh, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, she once told me that in the whole of that time, she didn't think she'd have a actually knowingly met a Republican. But there are plenty of them around, as we can see from the voting figures. I mean, there's a growing tribalization of the way in which we socialize. We don't, it's a milder version of the problem of the social media. We don't like to associate with people who don't agree with us. That's a problem. Well, English was a bit more optimistic. He said, um, even though we moderate what we say because we've kind of perceived what opinions are acceptable these days, there comes a point when people just say enough is enough yeah. and it breaks out. Well, the voice referendum was a particularly interesting example because the polls suggested a high degree of support for it at the, at the beginning, mm -hmm. which then fell away in the course of argument. Now, that happened because people were standing up to say this is nonsense, uh, this is impractical, or this is racist, or a number of other arguments against it. I mean, it is, like many of these things, it is uh, comforting to feel that one is doing something for aggrieved minorities. And it's only when you actually think seriously about the mechanics and the implications that you may say, well, it may be comforting, but there are more important considerations pointing the other way. The, the voice referendum was a good example of the way in which free speech can moderate initial instincts so as to produce a different answer that people will on the whole accept, as I, I have no doubt they will. But although there was a fashionable view to express and an unfashionable one, actually both views were pretty thoroughly aired in the course of that, 
that referendum campaign. Uh, and people did change their mind, and I'd be surprised if they only changed, uh, expressed their different view in the privacy of the polling booth. I wonder if part of that is actually a pushing back against a perceived elite. Perhaps similarly to Brexit, there was a, a political class who were pushing the idea of a yes vote for the voice pretty strongly and a no vote for Brexit pretty strongly. And then, as, as you alluded before, uh, on American campuses, lots of people are feeling as if they can't express their, their true perspectives without opprobrium or, or, or ostracization. And yet when it comes to actually in a polling place, they're, they're anonymous and they, and they can express their, their, their true view. And some of that may be a, a resentment or, or a, uh, as I say, a pushing back against an elite who they feel trying to control them. Yes, I think there is something of that, and I would accept that there, there, is, uh, there are some analogies with the Brexit debate in the UK. Uh, the Brexit debate in the UK, I think, raises a, a different issue which has implications well beyond that particular argument, which is the role that economic misfortune or economic decline, relative or absolute, has on the formation of opinion. I'm sure that one of the reasons why the... Um, intellectual coercion that we've been talking about comes primarily from the young is the disappointment of entrenched economic expectations which is always a dangerous moment in the life of any um, liberal democracy especially around housing yes well that's I mean housing is a, a I don't know about New Zealand but it's a big issue in the United Kingdom it's but I mean, if for reasons that in some ways are peculiar to the United Kingdom, uh, the Conservative Party's electoral demographic is very much based on older people with their houses already. The NIMBY vote is important to the, um, to the Conservatives, less so to others. And it's one reason why they have not built significant numbers of houses and instead, in, instead engaged in a variety of skin-deep measures which only basically pour government money into the housing market and make matters worse. I mean, this is a peculiar folly uh, of British politics. I couldn't agree more. That uh, was my first project in British think tank land, and it yes. hasn't changed in the last 20 years. No, it hasn't. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really serious problem. And uh, you know, I think that in many respects in the UK, but to some extent in other countries as well, uh, the young get a raw deal. We have moved relatively recently from a government-financed university fee system to a system which is inherently destructive of the university's finances because it requires them to provide an education for much less than it costs to do it. At the same time, we have loaded up a whole generation with debt. You would now leave university with debts of 50 or 60,000 pounds. You would then end up having to pay that back, and if you look provided that you earn more than, I think it's 24,000 threshold. If you then look at what they're paying in what is effectively taxation, they're paying a marginal rate of up to 60%. I mean, this is a profoundly shocking state of affairs. And when coupled with the fact that the entire benefit system, which is the largest call on government finance, is angled towards older people, and you can see that the finances of the state, the policies of the state, are very much adverse to the interests of younger people. It's a cliche to say that this, the current generation of younger people 
are the first generation which can no longer look forward to a standard of living better than that of their parents. Mm. But, it, you know, we it's difficult for people of our age to, certainly of my age, to comprehend how depressing this has got to be for a whole generation. And I'm sure that that is one of the reasons for the loss of faith in democracy. And it's a very important observation. And in some ways it brings us back to the Oliver's opening of the conversation alluding to the economic debates of the 1970s. And although clearly, as we've established, the, the debates now are very different, what you're saying is that it's least, at least partially got an economic basis, that, that this disappointment of expectations, especially for young people, which, which I think is absolutely right, this is something that we can address through sensible public policy and, yes. and, and do something about in a very practical way. Yes. The, water, the wider culture, cultural issues are, are much harder to address from public policy, but things like that we, we ought to be taking much more seriously. Yes, I think that's right, and it would, uh, it would be a, good, a better background against which to conduct the fight back against intellectual coercion. There is a theory in economics, I think, developed against the backdrop of South American politics, the idea of an undeserving capitalist class. So where you perceive as a population that there are undeserving capitalists who got rich on the back of corruption and other evil practices, you feel that it's your right to punish them by going against the system that made them rich in yes. this undeserved way. That, that's, I mean, obviously that has been a, uh, an important factor, particularly since the um, financial crash of 2007-8. The undeserving capitalists that were branded as such in the UK were bankers who received very large bonuses. I mean, it's. I'm, I don't think I would defend the, 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 that state of affair. I, I have no problem about people getting filthy rich. Uh, indeed, I think that a society in which you can't get filthy rich is going to be a, a poorer society for everyone. But uh, I certainly think that the way that assets were distributed in the banking industry was both politically destructive and probably contrary to the interests of the banks themselves. So to use maybe a biological metaphor, the body of a politic in Western countries is weakened because of issues like housing, because yes. of declining education standards in our schools, because yes. of a perception of unfairness in society, and therefore... It's capricious the, patterns of inequality. I don't think yep. that the population at large is particularly egalitarian, but I think that they find the capriciousness of the factors that determine whether you're rich or poor is repellent. And because the body is weakened, yep. it is susceptible to a virus like anti-liberal sentiments. Yes, what does that mean then when you look into foreign affairs and geopolitics? So we have weakened Western societies, weakened Western democracies. And on the other hand, we had for at least for a while seemingly or at least relatively successful authoritarian regimes mm. that then seem to have some sort of appeal to at least some groups within our societies. In China. Yes, but not just China. I mean, for a while, even Turkey looked good. Not anymore, of course. Even Russia looked interesting because at least it was a strongman cult. Of course, this is all falling apart now, hopefully. Yes. But for at least a while, that seemed inspirational, and especially the Chinese case. It's exactly like the way that people thought about the Soviet Union exactly. in the 1930s. Yes. 
or or even dare I say it, the Nazis in the nineteen thirties. It was it yeah. was it was, was disturbingly mixture, fashionable in in some Western yeah. countries to among the intellectuals, the, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> well, yes, except I think that, that there's a difference between attitudes to the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Ad, an admiration of Nazi Germany coupled economic admiration with much more ideological ad- admiration. There were lots of people who did not admire uh, the ideology of Soviet Russia, mm. but who did admire what it had done, achieved economically, partly because they either shut their eyes to or were ignorant of the staggering human cost. Well, John Maynard Keynes published um, his general theory in German with a very embarrassing foreword. So to all Keynes... Saying that Hitler got it right. Basically saying that his theories would be more easily applied in a system like Hitler Germany. Mm. And I think he was wrong about that as much. Yeah, I think he was, of course he was wrong on many things, I think. (laughs) He was was wrong to think that that despotism makes it easier to have the kind of economic system that he envisaged. And even in the mid-1980s, the best-selling economics textbook in the world, Samuelson's Economics. I studied that. That's how, that was my primer in economics. It contained a par- paragraph in the mid-1980s that the Soviet Union was an example that a centrally planned economy can work and thrive. Mm. Back then, I think in the mid-80s, it was pretty obvious to people other than Samuelson that, that it wasn't true, mm. but nevertheless. I think, I think it probably can thrive, but it requires empathy and talent on the part of the of the rulers, which is a very rare commodity. I, I, would, I would disagree, actually. I think, I think it can only thrive at about the level of the family, I think, I think beyond right. where you but, have that uh, degree of affiliation. I think we have the socialist calculation it's, debate. It's never Jesus. succeeded yeah. because it doesn't go with the human material that, is, that it's supposed to work with. But, you know, theoretically, you could have an extraordinarily wise system of government. You don't encounter it very often. I mean, it's sometimes suggested. What you still uh, don't have is a functioning price system. No, I, I quite agree with that, but what you can have uh, is a highly authoritarian system uh, which defends the classic price mechanism against its many enemies. Singapore may be a good example of that. Back to the current geopolitical discussion. Where does Western society and Western democracy stand? Does it have a chance to reassert itself, to reinvent itself, and to convince its people that it's more attractive than the alternatives out there? I think it will always succeed in intellectually convincing some people. I don't know whether it will succeed in intellectually convincing enough people. What I think is much more likely is that the basic framework of decision-making will survive, and therefore the possibility of retreating from current notions when we arrive at a destination which we suddenly discover for reasons we should have realized years before is rather unpleasant. That possibility still exists. And that is the reason why I had started the conversation with a reference back to the days of the Center for Policy Studies, Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph. Mm. Because I would like to know from you what lessons you have learned or written learned at the time which would be applicable to our situation today. Well, I think Margaret Thatcher was a good example of a pretty authoritarian spirit who used her authority to defend, for example, free markets. She also used it to uh, impose some particular social views that other people wouldn't accept, for example, on homosexuality and its place in the educational system. But Margaret Thatcher was basically a control freak. She broke up 
alternative sources of authority. She subordinated local authorities. She took her hammer and sickle to the to the professions on the ground that they were basically stick-in-the-mud institutions that were resisting more by instinct than intellectual decision uh, the revolution that she wanted to bring about. So, I mean, Margaret Thatcher did some things that were extremely good for the United Kingdom and put its economy back on a more or less even keel. And we are still enjoying some of the benefits of that. But we can't, we, we shouldn't pretend that she was a classical liberal. Also, I think that those kinds of economic revolutions around the world, one of the things that they did in, in the United Kingdom, in New Zealand, Australia, was to move the model of the university from what I would say was a traditional scholarly model to a much more commercial one. There was a decision that we needed more people with degrees for some reason. I don't know what that reason was, but now we have approximately four times the number of undergraduate uh, proportion proportionally for four times the proportion of the population getting undergraduate degrees than was the case mm. prior to that and I, I actually think that that commercialization of the university is one of the big reasons for its demise as a a true scholarly institution it's not the only one we've, well, it was we've unsuccessful talked. even on its own terms at least it was in the united kingdom because what it one of the things that it did was to promote the more abstract approach to, for example, the natural sciences that were characteristic of universities, as opposed to the practical engineering skills that had previously been taught in polytechnics and engineering colleges. The, one of the United Kingdom's problems is that it has a great deal of brilliance and an insufficiency of competence. And the university sister tertiary education sector which is too heavily angled towards universities, is one contributor to that. I think that the, the commercialization, at least of the universities in the UK, I think was very much more characteristic of what happened in this century after Mrs. Thatcher had gone. The Brown Report, which basically treated universities as students were consumers, mm. universities should teach whatever con the consumer wanted, the idea that they might be there so as to learn some things that they didn't necessarily want to learn, but which had objective value, doesn't seem to have occurred to Lord Brown. I mean, he wasn't the sole cause of what has happened, but he was very characteristic of a particular attitude of mind. I think that it, there is, there's nothing wrong in principle with the notion that public funding of universities should be concentrated, for example, on the natural sciences, and on things that can be seen to produce economic benefits, leaving private funding to sponsor things like history, classics, and so on. That is, a, for practical purposes, the US model, where the, the um, scientific departments of major American universities are in practice funded through gov largely through government programs. But they produce fantastic work on the arts as well, but on the basis of their endowment and of donations. I think this is a perfectly viable model, and I think it's nothing to do with the problems that universities currently have about politically correct approaches, the notion that you start with the result, you start with the answer and work backwards. I mean, one of the problems can be that uh, the students are quite radical That's right. at the moment in their views, and it's very difficult for the universities to push back against the students because, well, basically... 
the idea that the customer is always right. You don't want to alienate your customer base by standing no. up to them. Uh, I mean, students have always been radical. They're radical about different things now, and they're radical about things that have a bigger potential for damage. Right, but perhaps the difference is that, as James says, the the scholars themselves are too readily on on board with every fashionable view that comes through the the, the students, and they don't have any more. It would seem to me, and and this is from direct experience, the the intellectual backbone to. Uh, use a disciplinary approach to pushing back and, and actually educating the students, as you say, in things that they might not want to hear or didn't think they wanted to learn. Yes. Well, clearly there has been a lot of that, whether it's uh, the influence of the students or uh, self-generated by the academics is a more difficult question. So maybe this might be one of the, our last questions, but this whole problem we're facing now, this new ideology... Why is it so bad in the English-speaking world? Because I, I grew up in Canada and England listening to good people like you saying what at the time seemed obvious truths about the fundamental uh, values of our society. I grew up reading John Stuart Mill. And now it seems like this has been inverted in such a way that the English-speaking countries are in the lead in this illiberal movement. So how do we turn that around? I, we are only, only going to turn it around by bringing about a fundamental cultural change of the sort that the kind of debate we've been having over the last hour is designed to produce. We're, we're, not, we're not going to do that single-handed, but there are other people in the field as well. Mm. Why is the Anglosphere uh, in the lead? In fact, it's there are countries like France where there's very, very little of the kind of problem that we're talking about. I think it's partly because uh, the universities have a more prominent place in the intellectual and political life of Anglosphere countries than they do in most European countries, certainly. I mean, the universities, as opposed to specialized tertiary education institutions, actually have a very limited and not particularly useful role in France, where the, the standard of teaching is actually not very impressive, and they do not have the prestige that universities have in the Anglosphere. The position in Germany is somewhere halfway between the Anglosphere position and France. That, I think, is one reason. It's the, it's the particular significance of universities in the English-speaking world. I also think that there, is, there has always been a bigger authoritarian element in the intellectual life of many continental countries. Again, I think France is the best example of this, which has, in a sense, made alternative forms of authoritarianism unnecessary. But it's a very complicated subject, and those two factors, I think, probably do no more than scratch the surface. I wonder it. as well if it's it, because of a common language, a, a contagion from the United States, uh, which, which seems to have driven a lot of these ideas. I, I mean, I know that the philosophical foundations are actually French philosophers. and as, yeah. uh, But the odd thing is Derrida and Foucault have never had any influence in France. No, that's right. They've only uh, prevailed intellectually in places like the United that, States. And that's what I'm saying, that they, that's what gave it a head of steam. Yeah. And they, they do seem to have led the charge on this culture war business and, and seem to be more polarised than any other country yeah. now. And perhaps the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand and Canada because by dint of a common language, are more susceptible to contagion. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. Although English has is increasingly becoming, even in linguistically nationalist countries like France, mm. is the, the language of intellectual discourse 
everywhere. I mean, there are countries where effectively, which are effectively English-speaking countries, like the Netherlands, which do have not experienced the problems that we have in the UK and in the United States. So there's, there's obviously more to it than just language, but I would agree that contagion is much easier if you speak the same language. Mm. As it happens, Michel Foucault spent quite a lot of his time in the United States mm -hmm. and, and spoke perfect English. As we arrive at the end of our conversation, which I enjoyed very much, and thank you once again for joining us, I think we should end on an optimistic note. <laughs> so the question to you is actually, what is the greatest source of optimism for you? I have become less and less optimistic over the years. I think that the process of action and reaction will eventually produce a move the other way. The reason why I find it hard to describe that as optimism is that I do not know how long it will take. It might be quite a long time. Or, or in which case, we can only conclude the conversation by wishing that at least on that one you're wrong. And <laughs> I, <laughs> will come I would love to be wrong. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lord Thanks, Johnson.